The text that I would like to draw your attention to comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Well, this is not the first time that we have heard about large numbers of people coming to Jesus for healing and for exorcism, that is, the casting out of demons. Ever since the healing of Simon's mother-in-law in chapter 1, people have sought to bring the sick and the demon-possessed to Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 33, we read, The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. A quiet campaign was not to be the case for Jesus. The man cleansed of leprosy disobeyed Jesus, and we read in chapter 1, verse 45, he began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. News about Jesus had spread like wildfire throughout the Galilean district, according to J.B. Phillips in his translation of the New Testament. For our Bible talk, we're going to consider our passage under two headings. First of all, people everywhere, and secondly, from everywhere. And I'd like to thank Dick Lucas for a sentence which inspired me to use these words for these headings. Well, first of all, people everywhere. We read in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Well, Jesus had just healed a man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue, probably at Capernaum. Capernaum was a town located on the lake, so it wasn't far for Jesus to withdraw to the lake. It was a town situated very much like Lake Cajeligo, the town at Lake Cajeligo in western New South Wales. It was right at the lakeside. Well, this was also, of course, the scene, the lakeside was also the scene of the calling of the first disciples and a favoured place for public teaching, unrestricted by official disapproval. Although the Pharisees and the Herodians had rejected Jesus and plotted to kill him, as we read about in chapter 3, verse 6, the last verse before we pick up with this particular passage, it's interesting that the Jewish people followed him. So the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting to kill Jesus, but the Jewish people on the whole were keen to follow Jesus and to find out more and to benefit from what he, he was doing. In verse 9 we read, Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Well, that crowd that was following Jesus was intense, to say the least. The Fairfield COVID queue has been an intense experience for many people. 
Well, the crowd seeking Jesus would have been no less intense, just without vehicles and with a cure and not just a test as the outcome. Somehow the disciples were able to arrange a small boat in response to their master's command. Jesus could then go out from the crowd and not be inundated. Just where these people came from is described in verse 8, which we will consider under our second heading shortly, from everywhere. The crowd had come because Jesus had healed many. By and large, they had not come to hear about the kingdom of God, but to witness and to benefit from his healing and from his exorcism. However, there were some who were prepared to further their commitment to Jesus' emerging disciple-making movement, as we will hear about in the next passage when Jesus appoints the 12 apostles. We're not told in this passage either whether people were healed, but I do think that it is safe to assume that they were. We don't know what the diseases were that Jesus healed. In Mark's Gospel, some of the various diseases healed by Jesus include fever, leprosy, paralysis, hemorrhaging, deafness, speech disorder and blindness. In the present case, it's very likely that Jesus would show compassion to people who were suffering from these diseases and heal them. As we've heard before, Dick Lucas said of Jesus' ministry, proper priority does not and must not exclude the calls of compassion. Jesus' priority was to proclaim the kingdom of God, but that must not exclude the calls of compassion as we see demonstrated by Jesus. In verse 11, we are told, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Well, true to form, the impure spirits or the demons recognized who Jesus is and acknowledged him in the same way that his father had acknowledged him as the son of God. The son of God infers that Jesus is divine. In fact, that he is God. Mark again doesn't mention whether the impure spirits are expelled, but I do think again that it's safe to say that they were. The point is the recognition by the impure spirits of Jesus as being the Son of God. Again, Jesus' custom was to command the impure spirits to be silent, as we read of in verse 12. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. As we have considered before, the secrecy could be for two reasons. First of all, Jesus fulfills the role of the servant of the Lord foreshadowed in Isaiah, a role that is defined by restraint, humbleness and hiddenness. Or secondly, Jesus wanted to prevent a false understanding of who he is. An open confession of Jesus' messiahship would have brought about an immediate confrontation with Rome and the religious authorities before he arrived in Jerusalem. Well, whichever the reason, Jesus was a man with a plan. So we see in this scene that people were everywhere, but we also learn that they were from everywhere. Going back to verse 8, describing the crowd. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. 
Now, people were already coming uh, and following him in Galilee. Okay, so you've got that group of people. Then there were people from Judea and Jerusalem. Now, Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem were principally Jewish territories. Idumea and the regions across the Jordan were mixed Jewish Gentile regions or Jewish and non-Jewish regions. Tyre and Sidon were largely, if not entirely, Gentile regions. So there were people from everywhere. That's the point we need to recognise at this stage. Jesus' influence exceeded at this point that of John the Baptist, fulfilling what John had said. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and to untie. You see, John had only attracted crowds from Jerusalem and Judea. Well, as I was reading this verse, verse 8, in the authorised version or the King James version, I was struck by the expression, a great multitude, when they heard what great things he did, came unto him. A great multitude came unto him. That's what was happening and describes, I think, what the Christian faith is all about. People coming to Jesus. This verse is also helpful in enabling us to understand what this whole passage is about, in my view. People coming to Jesus from everywhere encapsulates the universal appeal of his ministry and his message. Dick Lucas said, this great company from all over Palestine, that is the world of the Lord's ministry, is here, I think, a microcosm of the whole world for which Jesus came and that one day will come to him. Now, a microcosm is a miniature capsule representing something much larger. God originally intended Israel, that is God's people in the Old Testament, to be a light to the nations. Well, Jesus fulfills this. His healings and exorcisms of people from these locations that are mentioned in verse 8 were a foreshadowing of his mission to the whole world through the disciples in the Great Commission. That Great Commission is very clearly put in Matthew chapter 28, and we pick it up at verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So there were people everywhere, from everywhere. Well, in drawing to a close, I want to point out three things for us to do. First of all, we are to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. This is what Mark wants his readers to understand. The disciples did not recognize Jesus as the Son of God, but the impure spirits did. But that was before the cross. It wouldn't be until the cross that a human being would recognize Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, the human being that would recognize this was a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. He was a Roman soldier, a centurion. We're told in chapter 15, verse 39, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. We now live after the cross. So we need to recognize Jesus as the Son of God too. Well, we don't just need to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. 
What we also need to do is we need to submit to Jesus. And this is the second thing we need to, to do. We need to submit to Jesus as the Son of God. It's one thing to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. It's another thing to submit to him as the Son of God. Even the impure spirits recognize Jesus as the Son of God. James Edwards said, As spiritual forces themselves, the evil spirits recognize the one filled with God's Spirit, but they do not participate in the object of their sight. Well, we participate in the object of our sight, of Jesus being the Son of God, by submitting to him as the Son of God. And we submit to him specifically by repenting and believing the good news. To repent means to, I'm going to put it this way this time, to sit under God's word and to obey it. Not to sit beside it, not to sit over it. To sit under it means to find out what it says and then to do it. So we need to repent, but we also need to believe the good news. The good news being that Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, would reconcile man to God through his death upon the cross, forgiving us for our sins. So we recognize Jesus as the Son of God. That's the first thing. Secondly, we are to submit to him as the Son of God. And thirdly, we are to tell others that Jesus is the Son of God. The impure spirits were commanded not to share Jesus' identity as the Son of God. That command does not apply to us. We have a different command. In light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in light of the Great Commission, we are to tell others that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, people opposed to Jesus and therefore evil will seek to command us not to tell others about Jesus. When Peter and John were hauled before the religious authorities in Acts chapter 4, they were commanded not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Their response in chapter 4 of Acts, verses 19 to 20, But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is the Christian attitude. So we are to be people who recognize Jesus as the Son of God. We are to submit to him as the Son of God, and we are to tell others that he is the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for what you have done in sending your Son into this world to die upon the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. Father, we do pray that we would recognize Jesus as being your son. We pray that we would submit to him by repenting and by believing the good news. And we pray that we would be people who tell others that he is your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.